Welcome back to Unspoken Unsung, the podcast that celebrates the accomplishments and lives of people you may pass on the street every day, never knowing how their achievements and life stories could inform and inspire you. Few of us as children know what we want to do with our lives. Today we'll meet someone who knew from a very early age what he wanted to do, and he did it. Just a singer, I can't fake my feelings. I can't be your vision. I lack that sweet emotion. I dare not be your lifeline unless you're truly hard pressed. Cause times have not been easy, but maybe I hadn't noticed me too. Hedges, capers, great to see you. It's good to be here, Danny. Oh, thanks. Good to be here. So when I started thinking about this conversation, a memory kept popping up, and it had to do with the houses. You used to buy all these houses, and then you would completely remodel them. And one of them, I recall, you did this really magnificent job of remodeling it, and when it was done, there were all these brilliant white walls, very sparsely. There, there weren't a lot of pictures on the walls. But there was one, and it really stood out. It was a portrait of Albert Einstein. Yeah. And I've, I've wondered long, what, what, did it, what is it with you and Albert Einstein? Uh, I, I, hmm. Well, let's see. There are a couple of different things. I'm, I'm just a been a great admirer from the get-go. Um, uh, the wildness of just the look of that photo He's in his leather jacket, which you know, as I was a I, I I was a wannabe bad boy when I was in my early teens, and uh, so the leather jacket worked and the wild hair worked uh, both for. I mean, Dylan said, you know, you you, you got to let it grow out there long so it doesn't get in the brain and screw you <laughs> up, right? Uh, but I I was born in Princeton. Yes. Einstein was a next door neighbor and pushed me in my pram when I was little. Really. And talked to me. So I, I, I don't, I don't, maybe there's something way back from then. Left some uh, of his juju was, there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I just, I guess his, his idea of love being the most powerful force in the universe mm. was uh, stuck. Yeah. Yeah. So that history, going back to Princeton, uh, I, I consider myself extremely fortunate to have met your father and your mother and gotten to know them on mm-hmm. pretty good levels. Yeah. Um, so how would you how would you describe them as individuals? Oh, my papa was a bareback rider, and mama was a, my, my mama was a bareback rider, and my papa was a wired man. <laughs> Time was all I had together, child. Can you begin to understand how I come to be so hungry, honey? I'm just living as fast as I can. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, it's, uh, no, that that's, that was a, a a total totally not who they were, but but one I wrote. Or, Papa, I bought some licorice because I know how much it pleases. And I ran all the way from downtown, and I only ate three pieces. Wow. <laughs> and I love to hear your laughter. He had the most magnificent laughter in the world. Um, I think he, he was maybe the most accepting person I've ever met. Mm. 
Um, and and Betty Betty was in in her own way uh, the most unconditionally unconditional loving woman I've ever yeah. met. Um, I I just felt totally blessed to be born into their you world. Were. You were. Um, Hedge was. I mean, they were both very very smart. Um, Hedge had. I just. I, he had such kind of wonderful judgment in terms of how he operated with people. Mm. Uh, a gentleness that uh, that I I would have loved to have gotten more of. <laughs> yeah. Not meaning the capability. Yeah. I got plenty of it in from, time yeah. too. Uh, you know, he was Navy most of my life. He was in seminary at, at Princeton at uh, when I when I was born, but he was is in the Navy. So th th the only downside to that was we didn't have him a lot. Mm. Um, he'd be gone for uh, long periods of time. Uh, uh, I think about how what it's like for a woman raising two children mm. on her own um, and and never I never saw her complain or be angry or cry or it was fascinating that you know I, I was protected from that as a child um, I'm sure it was a frustrating thing for her um, she said later you know, in her 80s, you know, some I don't know whether it's Ruth or somebody asked her, "Would you have done anything differently?" And she said, "Yeah, I would have. I would have had my own job, my own mm. my own mm -hmm. career." She had been a school teacher and a therapist and a, a, a pollster, and a, she, so she would take a job wherever we were to, you know, to to support things. And the choir sang in the choir. She said, I would have had my own career, and I would have had more sex. <laughs> and I thought, God, that's a delicious thing to learn about for your mother when you're 60, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, she was a wonderful oh, yeah. woman. Yes, she was. She used to, when, if, well, you probably had the experience. The first time you, anyone, any, if there any guest came to the house and they were nervous for dinner, yeah. One of the things she would consistently do is when it came time to serve, she would throw the plate, their plate, to them across the room, <laughs> and, uh, just to say, "Hey, this, you know, you could relax here. You better catch this, but you could relax." And I, I, I thought it was funny. The only one person ever didn't catch the plate. <laughs> yeah, I married her. <laughs> yeah. Okay. They were both so warm, and they had a they had a natural, understated elegance about them that was just really, yeah. really special. Yeah. So, so what were your early years like? You say you're, you were a uh, military brat. Yes, but I don't. I don't. I'm, I mean, I don't really have a recollection of the military aspect of it. Although I grew up on bases and stuff, it just if you don't have anything to compare it to, yes. it's just what it is. And, you know, I had a, you know, went to lots of different schools, you know, ne was never any place longer than two years. Uh, most places less than that. Uh, some places, we were in Topeka for just under 12 months. We were in uh, Gu on Guam for 13 months. Uh, 
but for the most part, it was less. You know, it's like two years at the at the most until college, and then I then I got to then I got to find out that I would move every year or so, or change relationships every year and a half or so, which was consistent with my upbringings. You know, yeah, so I can see it's that. fascinating sort of thing to watch that happen. I, I think that that. Um, I mean, I, my dad was an, was an officer, so that probably made uh, made the my experience diff, somewhat different than maybe the enlisted kids knew. But it seemed like the only hierarchy was rank or rate, mm-hmm. and for the kids, uh, I don't recall anybody ever trying to pull rank or rate because their dads were mm. whatever. But it's um, it was. I mean, I remember in high school, my, one of my buddies saying, what's it like you don't have any roots? And I said, I don't know what's it like to live in one place all your life. <laughs> you know, it's like you, do, you don't have anything to compare it to. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I loved it. I mean, I had a, I think it was, for me, it, it, it helped with, with um, adaptability. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, um, it helped with with a willingness to expose who you are quickly to mm. get to know someone to be friends quickly knowing that you only had a, a short period of time to bring people close to you and then uh, and get close to people yeah. and then say goodbye and never see them again wow. and that was a that was a that part of it was a little unusual cuz i i i have there's i don't think there's no one from my past college, up to college, right? Mm-hmm. There's no one in that past that I have any contact with whatsoever. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. That brings back a, another memory to me. Mm. So this is years ago. Okay. We're having dinner. There's a group of us having dinner at a Japanese restaurant, and suddenly you strike up a, oh, a conversation <laughs> with a waitress in fluent Japanese, <laughs> and I had no idea you could speak Japanese at all. Uh, uh, I, my Japanese is is the I so I lived in Japan for two years as a teenager. And my Japanese was good enough at that point to get my motorcycle fixed or to order meals or to have uh, inconsequential conversations. <laughs> uh, I could say, oh, that's very good, or yeah, that's, you're very pretty. <laughs> I could say stupid things. Um, uh, or I could swear. I could swear well. <laughs> because I was a t- and then I went back as, a, as an adult in my 30s. Um, for six months, and mm-hmm. uh, and on the plane flying back the last time, I thought I'm going to really learn to get. I'm going to get fluent in in my Japanese, and and uh, and I and I had a suddenly sinking feeling. Think I'm never going to go back. So why do that? Uh-huh. But I the best Japanese conversation that I had. The reason I'd gone the second time to Japan was the woman I was living with was a model and she was working there and I I ran up a phone bill that was more than the cost of the flight so I decided instead of continuing to do that I would go and stay instead. And was in in uh, they were doing a photo shoot with a bunch of models who were Swedish and English, American and Russian. 
and the photographer that was doing the shoot was Japanese, and the the person who was supposed to be the translator wasn't there mm. and didn't show up. And so there was no way that they were communicating. In my limited Japanese, I was trying to have some supportive conversations to help with the the, the models to know what the, uh. the guy wanted. And... Uh, and finally, we came to an impasse, and I thought, so I, swear, I thought, what can I think? And I said, Spengo Wakarimaska, do you speak Spanish? <laughs> and he's, oh, so this name. So we're off in Japan, and, and, and we were able to have a full conversation in Spanish oh, because, because he understood Spanish. He spoke Spanish, and I don't know how, but I did too. So, so we had this sort of wonderful conversation, and, you know, in as as an interpreter in in Japan of of Spanish my my Spanish by the way my my uh my senior year my junior no my freshman year in 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 high school I took Spanish in Japan from a a, a guy who had was I think he was Finnish and he was he was we couldn't understand a word he said so, <laughs> anyway, well, even if we understood what the word was supposed to be, because the accent was so bad, we never. So it was default immersion class. There you go. There we go. Yeah. So when did music really become part of your life? Oh, from the get go. That's all I ever really wanted to do as mm. a kid. I just, and I, I'm not sure. I'm, my mom loved music. We had music throughout the house always, but it was, you know, Bartok and and and. Rimsky Korsakoff and and Dvorak and Brahms and mm -hmm. I mean it was classical music it was I just absolutely loved it and then one day at the pool I heard one two three o'clock four o'clock rock five six <laughs> and I thought ah oh. and I was I was just totally gone I mean I was already a little bit off maybe before that with. Uh, with it would take more than a pack of wild horses raising their forces to keep you from me. Um, shaboom, shaboom, sha -da 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 shaboom. Those things just, it was like that just spoke right to me. And maybe some of it a little bit later was seeing how records were. My, I had an older sister. And uh, so there would sometimes be kids gathering, and we didn't have a record player, but people, someone would bring their record player over. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing this little spinning, you know, big circle around the you know, 45, you know, record, and uh, and it seemed to be the center of what was this gathering. Yeah. And, uh, so maybe there. I mean, I looked at in hindsight because um, I wanted to be a part of the group. But I was, you know, I was the twerp young, <laughs> you know, and my sister was trying to enjoy her boyfriend or her wannabe boyfriend, and there were her friends there, and uh, you know, the younger brother's kind of a pain in the ass at that point. So, <laughs> um, but but he, but it was bef I mean, it was music's all I really wanted to do. So imagery, the imagery you you said you had just there about the 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 disc and this, mm -hmm. you. As I understand it, wrote lyrics before you ever wrote music. Mm-hmm. So, yep. was the appeal of those songs partly the rhythm of the, the that you translated into lyric before you actually got into the music aspect of it? Um, 
I, I just, I don't know. I don't know, Dan. I, I mean, I, I think I was writing the music in my head. Mm. I just didn't have any capacity to play it. Mm. I could sing it, you know. Um, it's interesting because when I started, I started to I started to play guitar when I was fifth, fourteen or fifteen, um, and I couldn't play what I heard. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and so I started writing music to be able to sing. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I mean, if you want to play this song, but you can't. I mean, I knew the chord. I could play. I could. I could play the chords, but somehow I could not hear the difference between that and this. Mm. And, uh, and it's a gift. And I mean, it, it, in hindsight, it was a gift because, as a result, I started writing. You know, more than I never did copy. Never did a cover band. Mm -hmm. You know, I I played in a rock and roll band in high school, and we did. Mostly my stuff, and uh, uh, played in a in a trio in in college, and and did some f cover stuff, but also stuff that I was writing. And then Don and I did mostly, you know, our stuff. That's interesting because I would have thought your roots would go more back to folk. My no, my roots. My originally the roots were classical, and then. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, Buddy Holly, big, strong, you know, influence. Um, uh, I had great admiration for Elvis, but but Buddy, but loved Buddy more, Buddy mm -hmm. Holly more. Uh, uh, Clyde McFadder. Oh know? yeah, I oh, remember. Oh God, yeah. I yeah. mean, that Clyde McFadder, you know, Smokey, um, uh, the, you know the. The coasters. Yeah, oh. I, I mean that that was that stuff just totally. I just was over the top. I sang on the playground in seventh grade with Darstella Brown, uh, and uh, that's a name I don't know. Yeah, well, no one probably would, but Darstella was you know in eighth or ninth grade and. At least three hundred, maybe four, maybe three hundred fifty pounds, and and uh, and when she opened her vo mouth to sing, she was the most beautiful thing you could ever possibly wow. want to see or be around. I mean, she just with this a voice that would just like just transcend any illusion mm -hmm. of her not being absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Sounds like the beginnings of stability or, you know, in terms of time in one place for relatively long periods of time really started around the end of high school or college. Well, college, I mean, I spent four years at the same school. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yeah, never got kicked out of any of the schools that I had, 23 different schools, I think, when all was said and done. Yeah, so, there, and I, mm, stability... It had its own. I mean, I went to college because I didn't know how to get into the music industry. Mm -hmm. I had already. I had signed. I signed up for my first recording contract when I was sixteen, and I was in high school, and um, with Rendezvous Records. Uh, Kim Fowley, who had his father had been Doc on Gunsmoke. Oh yeah. And yeah. Kim Fowley had been the the 
the producer and creator of the Argyles, the Hollywood Argyles, at Alley Yes, yeah, yeah. Kim had he was a why he he was there's he's an amazing creek feature himself but he had come to monterey on a blind date uh, on it was going to have a blind date in monterey and she stood him up and he went to the radio station there and he said if is there any talent in this town <laughs> <laughs> and they sent him to me and uh and we we uh he signed me we, we wrote a song together and then i went to hollywood to rendezvous records and recorded mm -hmm. it and we signed and after the recording Jerry Riopelli was the engineer, who's also fairly big. Was fairly big in the music industry the later, yeah. uh, in his own in his own right. And um, uh, the they said you're never going to be able to record because your sibilants are bad. You pop on your p's, you hiss on your s's, and <laughs> and I was totally depressed and and uh, for about three or four months and and because that's all I ever wanted to do. And now they said you can't have that dream and. And that I, word never is a big word, isn't it? Well, I, it, it totally. And I woke up one morning and realized, well, you know, uh, that's what they say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, and I I wrote this song, and I was trying to figure out the right way to sing it. And you know how how would how should it be sung? And I realized, well, you wrote it. And so, however you sing it is the way it's supposed to be written. Yes. And so I started to sing it, and I I felt it come out of my pores. You know, sometimes when you sing, mm -hmm. you're just like being moved by music. Mm -hmm. And I uh, I had never had the experience of being moved that way with music and. I mean, I've been moved by other people's music, but not me doing it. And and uh, in the doing of it, I had this overwhelming um, disappointment and sadness, uh, and an absolute unbelievable joy of this is what music really is. Mm -hmm. And I I had this. The sadness was about I've wanted this for all the wrong reasons. So I wanted music. Part of what drove me and motivated me for with music was wanting uh, you want to have some fame and you want women, yeah, girls, yeah. girls to like you and yeah. and maybe money and because you could see the you know Buddy Holly and the and the you know the, the Elvis and the Jerry Lee Lewis and the and and uh, and I realized that this it's such a precious thing and I had wanted it for all the wrong reasons and I. And I, at some part of me, felt like, oh, you don't deserve it because you've disbastardized what this is really mm. about. Mm. And and I, I I thought on it and thought on it and thought on it, and then I thought those dreams drove me to that point. They served, they buoyed me and they carried me all the way up to through people saying you can't do it or you don't have a voice or yada yada yada. And then I said, it's just time for new dreams. And it was really, I think, the, the beginning of me writing um, music that to this day I have, I hold in a higher regard than the stuff that I was writing before then. Mm. I mean, the first thing that 
Kim Fowley and I wrote was Broken Home, Broken Heart, Me and My Baby Being Pulled Apart, A House Divided Cannot Stand When a Woman Can't Live with Her Man. There was a talking part in, yeah, yeah, in the song. Yeah. It's really very hokey. And, uh, and, uh, my baby came to my place with a sad look on her face. She said, Mom took the kids to the house in the car, and Dad, well, he, Daddy lost the case. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sort of like one of those ones where you, you're grateful that it was never really released and never hit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, but it was, a, it was enlightening to, 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 f- to feel the kind of power that music can be at 16 and realize, you know, this is this is worthy of a lifetime of your energy. So what was your major at Whittier College? I, I majored in, I don't want to pump gas, I don't want to marry Lady Morrison. <laughs> no, 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 no. no, the major was, uh, maj- the major was speech and drama and minor in cultural anthropology. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, I uh, understand you did some theater, you did some... Pl- did I did you know did theater didn't wasn't I mean I'm not sure why I did the theater but I did yeah I mean it did you know Playboy the Western World and and uh, Heinze and Pajama Game and and did all the you know the musicals and things like that and and Rashomon and you know some really serious stuff and uh, but but it, I wasn't really serious about it. Mm. I was I I, I uh, competed in oral and terp and original oratory and won the nationals in both of those and um, because that was sort of more well <laughs> that's interesting with oral and terp um, you, you know you you take two or three pieces of literature and or poetry and you intertwine it with some little connective tissue and and you 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 do it as speech right and. Uh, I I uh, I had decided that I wanted to do um, Pastures of Plenty, Woody Guthrie's Pastures of Plenty, mm-hmm. and uh, a piece of of um, uh, Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. Uh, those were the two pieces that I was combining, um, and I I put you know half a dozen quarters in my right pocket, and. It's a mighty hard road that these poor hands have trod. Right, and I sang Pastures of Plenty, and the that after that I won the nationals with that. After they banned singing (laughs) 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 from uh, collegiate uh, oral interpretation, (laughs) which I thought was a crime because I thought it was pretty smart, but it was no one had done that before, or no one had done it and won. So, Uh yeah. And it was there at Whittier you, you met Donna Carson. First day of school, the first week, orientation week, we met. They had a big party at the end of the first day, um, and they had a band playing, and we ended up on stage together singing, You know the best things in life are free, singing money. And didn't know one another, but we were on their stage together, this, the two of us. As part of an ensemble? No. It, the, the band was playing, and they were playing the song, and I was singing it, and Donna was singing it, and, the, and our f- people by us pushed us up on stage. And oh. so we ended up going up and singing that that particular thing. And then for the next four years, Donna soloed as a, as a soloist at any and all of the events that happened where there was entertainment. Donna 
sang as a soloist. And um, the three or four days later at, during orientation week, they had a talent show. And I went to go as a soloist and a couple of other guys, one other guy with a guitar, Arnie Moore, uh, was there. And we're waiting to be called individually for, you know, try out for the uh, audition for the thing. And, and so I go over to Arnie and we're playing something together. And this other guy, Mike Younger, walks over and, and uh, as we're singing and he starts doing a higher harmony. And the woman who was doing the auditions came out at that point and said, you guys are next, come on in. <laughs> and so we went as a trio. <laughs> and uh, the next day, I'm walking through Whittier, and I see a trio wanted sign at uh, the Oak Room in, in downtown Whittier. And uh, I went in and I said, I've got a trio. And, uh, and they said, so can I come by and show us? And one of the mic was not there, so Arnie and I went down and played something, and they said, you're hired. And so for four years, we played at the Oak Room. Mm -hmm. But that was the third day of, at Whittier. So mm. D Donna played as a soloist. I I played with Mike and Arnie as a trio throughout college. And as, I guess as so sophomores, we signed with Dot Records. And uh, and we recorded a song that was uh, ended up being number number seven, seven, I think number seven record in Japan, number one record in Tokyo for a short period mm. of time called Watanabe Joe. So another one of those ones where <laughs> you don't really want to remember that. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but, um, and then just before, so we, Donna and I got to see each other perform a lot and we were friends. And um, uh, her dad was our Marine uh, in living in San Diego. And um, just before we graduated, I, uh, I, I, I said, let's, let's take a bus ride downtown. And we walked around downtown. And I said, so what are you going to do when we graduate? And she said, oh, I'm going to head to San Francisco State, going to study take postgraduate work in psychology and see what happens from there. And, uh, and I said, well, what have you really wanted? What have you always wanted to do? And she said, sing. I said, I think we should give it a whirl. And mm. so we went back and learned three songs together and rehearsed them and rehearsed them and rehearsed them and and uh, came down to San Diego on a, one of the vacation things and played out at, uh, at Bifrost Bridge in East County. And, mm. and uh, people seemed to really like it, and we loved it. And... Missed the bus going back to Whittier. My folks loaned us a car, and and so we. I said it's Sunday going back, and we don't really. We have a car. We can we can do something <laughs> else. And and there's this club on Fairfax in L.A. on Sunday nights. They got a hoot night, open mic night. Let's go there. And we we went and did our three songs there. And the owner of the club pulled us off stage to try and sign us to a management contract. And someone whispered over my shoulder, go to the Troubadour tomorrow night. And uh, I thought, well, okay. And uh, since we had the car Monday, we went downtown at 2 o'clock, and we got showed up at the Troubadour at 2 o'clock Monday afternoon. And there were two people in line already at the box office to mm -hmm. sign up for the hoot night. And, uh, and so we stood there and got the education about 
what happens. So you go up on stage, you do your two songs, maybe three if they really like you, and then you run off stage as quickly as you can, and if you can touch the back wall and they're still applauding, then you get to run back up and do an encore. <laughs> and uh, the guy who was telling this was later, we was a little short guy, um, he's later in Dr. Hook, the medicine band. Behind us in line was Jackson Brown, um, and uh, later, because Jackson came later, and uh, so we, we that night we played our three songs, and standing ovation, and uh, we were sort of stunned, and we we're kind of walking off stage, and audience they kept going, and Larry Murray, who was the the hoot master, said, "Go back up on stage, do a, do your encore." We got up on stage, and said, "We we don't." We don't know any other songs. <laughs> so we'll do those again. And so we did the same three songs again. And then off stage, and Larry took us upstairs to the dressing room, camped us there. Uh, and I didn't re know it at the time, but Larry had, he was with a group called Hearts and Flowers, who became Eagles with mm -hmm. Long Branch and Penny Whistle, became Eagles. And, um, uh, and he was being produced by Nick Vinay at the time, who was also producing Linda Ronstead and the Stone Ponies, or at that time, the Stone Ponies, and Bobby Darren and um, Freddie Neal, and uh, who had, he had turned the Beatles down for Capitol three times. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, so Larry had pulled us and parked us upstage so he could go get Nick. Nick had been in the alley and come in to see the standing ovation, and uh, we didn't find this out until later. He, he said, oh, yeah, we're, we're signing you to Capitol. And the next day we went to Capitol and did basically our audition. We didn't know we were really auditioning. We thought, you know, he had heard it all. But he's, but uh, so we signed with Capitol the next day. So was the Troubadour already at its at its? Yeah, the Troubadour was the place. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah it was the it was the place. Doug Weston became our manager. And, wow. Uh, yeah. Off of three songs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, my friend Carlos, who artist, wonderful. At one point. Probably a year later, we had bought this kind of really, really wonderful place in Laurel Canyon that um, was was uh, 3,500 square feet, um, two bedrooms, four baths, um, built in the 20s, Spanish. And it's, I mean, it's absolutely magnificent. It was $65,000 in those days. It's now a couple million. But Carlos walked through the house, uh, you know, kind of just going, wow, wow, wow. And he said, hmm, all this for a song. Oh, wow, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for a song. So obviously there was a lot of chemistry with you and Donna, both musically and personally. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, we deeply loved one another. Uh-huh. Yeah. How did that evolve? Uh I don't, I mean, when you sing with someone and you're looking into their eyes, you know, yeah, I yeah. mean, the Eric Byrne who wrote I'm Okay, You're Okay, or the games people play, I mean, he right. had the founder of transactional analysis. Eric worked out of San Francisco. Um, he would bring his his training groups or his, or the people that were in therapy with him to see us when we were ever we in San Francisco. He said, I want you to see what intimacy looks like. Oh. 
And I think that there was a true intimacy with us on stage that um, when we sang, it's much of the time there just wasn't anything else but the other person. Mm. Um, I, uh, I, I mean, I, I, hard to... I remember numerous occasions where there would be a mistake in the lyric made. Uh, but it would be made exactly the same by both of us, <laughs> you know, where you forget or you use yeah. a different you use yeah. a different word or a different phrase, and and yet it it's comes out of both of us at the same time. Um, it, it uh, yeah, it's just, and I I mean I think that we felt like we were we were. Uh, I mean Donna was Donna was African American. Um, again, both of us raised in military families and where the hierarchy really is rank or rate. Uh, and so I think we had the benefit of not seeing that we were an interracial couple in the same ways that other people mm -hmm. saw. Um, and and uh, uh, But the fact that we knew that was seen by the outside world um, and, and it was at you know the '60s and early late '60s, early '70s. There was a whole lot of of movement within the whole civil rights activist kind of world, and and uh, so I think we felt like we were we were wanting to be good examples of the way the world mm. can work. Mm. And I mean, we were well supported by a lot of the. The a lot of the leadership within the black community at the time. I mean, uh, Nina Simone loved us. Harry Belafonte loved us. They supported us. The Odetta, you know, nearly killed your, uh, Fred Weintraub in New York for not treating us well enough at the bitter end, and uh, uh, in her mind, and and. Uh, yeah, so I mean, we got a lot of support in that from that at that time for that. I don't know. I mean, it, we were, we were. I think a big part of it is that we were enabling the other to live out a dream. Mm. I mean, I'm not sure. I don't know. It's. Hmm. We had this this career together, so I don't know whether or not. Without each other, either one of us would have had anything or would have been much better. I don't oh. know, you know, because it's not what happened. Yes. But the fact that the two of us were able to, to do this together really allowed us to each, I mean, I, I got to do everything I ever dreamed of doing. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to hard to imagine anything could have been better. Yeah. You know, it just... Well, over the space of your time, obviously you went to some real heights. Uh, you were on The Tonight Show several times, right? And yeah. Smothers Brothers. Smothers Brothers, Tonight Show. Every, every TV show that had anything to do with, with a variety show type, you know, where there was entertainment, we were on it. Mm -hmm. The Della Reese, the 
the John Gary, the Merv Griffin, the all we did all of those things. Wow. Yeah. Did all this Greek theater, Hollywood Bowl, Carnegie Hall. You know, you know, got to Atlanta Rock Festival, Philly Folk Festival, Berkeley Folk Festival. All of the, you know, every place. Well, it, it strikes me that, that not only the support you got from all those people, particularly people of the stature that you mentioned, mm -hmm. but what you had together must have made that a lot more easy transition than some people like. Like I was reading just today about one of the challenges of uh, today in the in the hip hop and rap. You know that a lot of these people come up so fast, and the people there's nobody to support them. So you get a lot of these people that are ODing and and getting shot or whatever. I well, I think also that I had finished my drug period before I got before we signed with Capital. I th I don't think I'd be alive if I had still doing drugs then. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, well, maybe not. Donna might have talked me out of it too. So that's that's a possibility. But all of I mean our friends from that era are no longer living. Mm. You know, Don, well, and Donna's not living now, too. But, I mean, all of the Tim Buckley and the, the you know, the, there's a bunch of people who we were close to at that point are gone from drugs or it's it being a dirty business. Yeah. Gabrielle Meckler, Gary Kelgren. Mm. Um, Gary Gary Kilgren started the record plant, which was the quote unquote the studio mm. in the in at that point in time. It's, it was sort of like going from the old school stuff to the this is the new this is the new deal, and uh, that ant farms in the walls and <laughs> you know and uh, and but but also just the state of the art. You know, I heard a I heard a recording you and Donna did of a Jackson Brown song. You did the recording in '71. His first album didn't get released until '72. We were the first people to record Jackson. Yeah, you know, we did several of his songs early on because we were friends uh, from from the Troubadour days. Oh yeah, yeah. Jackson got to the point where Jackson would play every Monday night at the Troubadour, and um, and people loved him, loved his music. Uh, but he couldn't really sing at that point, and mm. I'm not sure what he's done to you know. It's because he became a, a good singer, I think. Um, but early on, it, no one would sign him because he couldn't sing. They loved his writing, and uh, and you know, and I mean, let's see who else was played on our stage guest. A guest artist on our stage at the Troubadour, Johnny Mitchell. First day in L.A., she showed mm -hmm. up at the mm -hmm. Troubadour and was backstage playing, and we had her up stage. Um, uh, James Taylor did his first set uh, in L.A. on the Troubadour stage as a guest set while wow. Hedge and Donna were there. And he played a song in the dressing room, and we said, God, I'd love to do that. He said, I would love to hear you guys do it, but I got this album coming out in three months. Just yesterday morning, they let me oh, know. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, interesting. <clears throat> well, it sounds like I, I'm getting an image of L.A. as a big, small town. And also just there must have been a whole lot of cross-pollination going on in those days. The, in different, differing groups. So, I mean, you it's like re if you read Joni Mitchell's autobiography right now, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff in about about 
Stephen Stills and and uh, Graham Nash and you know that that it's like that's a whole era of folks group which included I guess the you know uh, Mama Cass and yeah. that that whole area we were not a part of that one the the folk side of the equation was a little different and then the fact that we were working so much we didn't get to spend a lot of time in LA the first four years that we were together in LA we were on the road for 44 months Wow. So we were in L.A. for four months, and that four months was spent recording albums or playing at the Troubadour or whatever. But there, but the Troubadour brought people together, mm-hmm. and that's really how that you know came about. Um, the the uh, the only other place where we got connected with people was by playing with them, like with Nina or. Um, Harry or things, or uh, because we were managed by the same people. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, John Denver was uh, became a friend because we were both being at that time managed by Jerry Weintraub, um, and uh, so John and and I mean, John stayed with us in you know in Laurel Canyon when he was in town, or um, or. Uh, I guess it was through the Troubadour that we met um, Leonard Cohen. Um, yeah. This, this, yeah, you know it's 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 interesting because I'm it, I'm getting this this thought about how fickle fame is, and what you know it's it's almost like uh, a a previous person that I interviewed I asked him if there was such a thing as a self-made man. And this is a guy that came from being a latchkey kid to a multimillionaire and that sort of thing. And he said, no. No, I don't. So yeah. well, I'm it t- struck it takes by a the... sperm and an egg. <laughs> you know, no, no one does it on their own. <laughs> well, the same thing seems to apply to fame. I mean, you know, because as, as much as Hedge and Donna did, as much, six albums, correct? Eight albums altogether. Eight albums. Yeah. There were seven with Hedge and Donna. Eight, eight I did one by myself, yeah. too. And yet... If somebody were to mention John Denver in the same sentence as Hedge and Donna, people would probably know more about Hed, uh, John Denver. Yeah. yeah. Well, he had a, he had a much bigger career. I mean, yeah. much much more successful in terms of, and and if you go back, I mean, you wouldn't think of uh, Chad Mitchell Trio and John Denver, mm, but yeah, that's yeah. where he, you know, that's where his first start really was with that. Yeah. And I had I was familiar with the Chad Mitchell Trio before. I was aware of Hedge and Dada, you know, I mean, because I knew Chad Mr. Trio when I was in high school. So. Yeah. So you landed a role as you, you were still with Donna playing, as I understand, when you landed a role in in a cult classic, I would say, (laughs) a movie that I happened to see. It was Legend of Hillbilly John. The Legend of Hillbilly John. It's interesting with that film, there's a, there, um, uh, Who's the the? There's the director now. He's done ten films, Inglorious Bastards. You know, is he, I don't recall. He's he's a monster director, um, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Yeah. So Tarantino, his first film that he, he got released was uh, My Best Friend's Birthday. It's a short film. Uh, done in 86, I think, before he had this huge success 
that he's had. Um, and in that film, there's a, a several scenes of it are in a radio station where the D DJ is interviewing people, and on the back wall in the radio station is a picture, uh, the, is a poster of the Legend of Hillbilly John, huh. in the film, and. Tarantino has a is, is known for not having anything in the scene that he doesn't have some reason for having it be there. So it's bizarre. I'd love to find out why that poster is in his film because he selected it for a reason. Wow. And it'd be interesting to see. No, but yeah, uh, uh, t uh, Tony Hope, John, Bob Hope's son, one of yeah. Bob Hope's sons, um, put up the money for The Legend of Hillbilly John. Don and I were together. Don was pregnant at the time, and we knew we were going to have to be out of the road, off the scene mm -hmm. for a while. So mm -hmm. it was an ideal thing to do the movie and be able to pay the bills that way. They were going to they were going to pay me more to do that than I had been. We mm -hmm. were getting for other things, and uh, and it seemed like okay, piece of cake. And they wanted me to write the music for it too. So mm -hmm. not 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 the soundtrack but the songs that were in the film and they're yeah. like 12 or 14 songs of the film and uh, uh, and so did the film and and um, uh, it's bizarre to see your face 30 feet tall you know or 40 feet tall however big its screen can fill up um, especially next to some familiar faces like Denver Pyle. Denver Pyle was wonderful. <laughs> the, the, you know, the, the rest of the actors were m magnificent with me. I mean, Harris Eulen, um Susan Strasberg, uh, all these remarkably magnificent, talented uh, character actors. Um, Percy Rodriguez and, you know, just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful characters. R.G. Armstrong, amazing. Mm -hmm. And um, and they were very supportive and, and helpful and except It would have been nice to get some direction. I didn't get much direction from mm -hmm. John Newland. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know whether he was afraid if we try to give him direction, maybe I'll fall apart. I don't know whether they, they, they got, I, I think they were looking either to get an actor who they hoped could sing or a singer who they hoped could act. <laughs> and uh, and, and um, they're, for the most part, it's fine. There are a couple of scenes that I'd like to not have to watch, you know, so. But, but it was a fun thing, and it subsequently discovered, yeah, it became a cult with certain I mean, the, the story is based on the work of Manly Wade Wellman, uh, who does Appalachian superstition stuff and, and is very well known in that part of the world. And so it kind of became a cult classic for fans yeah, of his. Yeah. So yeah. what brought about the end of Hedge and Donna? Um, well, we, we had a child, and um, we... Went out on the road with Ethan once, um, and it's it's um, uh, going on the road is not the easiest thing in the world. I mean, it, we loved it, so it's nothing about it that was onerous. But with a child, it becomes very very problematic and right. difficult. And you need to, in order to do it, we needed to be able to earn enough money in the gig to be able to hire someone to travel with us full time and only just all they had to do was take care of Ethan. 
And so we said we went out on the road once. And found out okay, this is rough. We gotta we gotta go. We gotta we gotta we have to release a single. We'd never released any singles up to that point. And we need a single. We need a hit single in order to be able to move. We were making about thirty five hundred to five thousand bucks a week, which sounds like a lot of money in nineteen sixty eight nine seventy one dollars, mm-hmm. but. You got 25% to the manager, 15% to the agent, 5% to the business manager. So that's 40% of that right off the top. And then we were traveling with six, five, four, five, six pieces of orchestra with Ben guys with us. Got to pay their room and board and salaries. And so I remember we did. We had a $3,500 for 30 minutes to play with um, to play at University of Massachusetts Amherst. And it costs us fifty dollars a piece to do it. <laughs> wow! <laughs> uh, which you know, thirty-five hundred, thirty minutes, thirty-five—that's a lot of money. Uh, but it's yeah. And so we needed to go up to the like ten grand a week sort of echelon to be able to really afford to do it uh, to hire someone. And so we went back into the studio to cut a hit record. That was the, we're going to try to cut a hit record. And we never released a single before. And we did a tune called Guava Jelly, which was a reggae tune. It was after I Can See Clearly, but before reggae was really Mm -hmm. big, 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 big hit. And um, wonderful tune. uh, And I loved the way we sang it. I loved it. I had learned to sing, learned to record by then. Mm-hmm. Um, early on, I think the records were not nearly as good as we were live. Um, but that's that song. I'm I'm singing the song at, mm-hmm. at that point, and um, uh, so the song was released. Sent, so, excuse me, the song sent out the promo copies to radio stations, and it's the number one phone request record in the nation for three weeks. Uh, it happened to coincide with a record plant pressing strike. So although it was the number one phone, it, would have, it was basically a hit, but there were no copies to sell. Oh, yeah. And uh, so by the time they were pressed and out to the studio, to the, to the record stores, the, the buzz was over for the song. And so Don and I said, you know what? It's been a phenomenal run, and let's, let's Time to do something else, and so we decided. So we went back to go to go back. We left the music industry to go back to school, and to get our masters, and then go on to psychology or something else mm-hmm. after that. And so moved back to San Diego and went to USIU uh, uh, to in her in a marriage and family or in a psychology you know master's right, program, right. and that was that was that, and. I was. We were there for about a year, and I got the. I just felt like I'm not really done yet, and uh, went back up to L.A. V- visiting friends, and um, uh, got connected up and signed to A&M Records, uh, to Almo Irving's publishing company of A&M Records as a staff writer, and spent a couple of years as a staff writer at A&M mm-hmm. Records. Living in L.A. Yeah, yeah. With Donna still? Uh, the first part of that was with Donna, and then uh, and then Donna and I we had a 
It's sort of like there was the reason that we were together no longer really mm. was there. Mm. And there were a number of of uh, number of different pieces to the puzzle. Some of it was uh, a, an, a woman who I just felt crazy lust in lust with, uh, which is, uh, yeah, I think that's that's probably a big part of why we split. Yeah, I I had an affair and said I couldn't I couldn't do both I couldn't lie to Donna about it and couldn't in my own mind thought I couldn't not be over here. That woman, by the way, was responsible for a lot of good songs. I mean, in terms of being a, a muse, if you will. And uh, and uh, and I got. My just comeuppance with, uh, you know, it's like what goes around comes around. To, uh, to, they sent me to Nashville for uh, in the second year. They sent me to Nashville to write with some people down in Nashville, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Was, yeah, I mean, I'll go write with anybody. And and uh, while I was in Nashville, she and the president of A and M, no A and M's records, A and M's publishing company, he went to the Bahamas with Carol and. <laughs> And then when I got back, uh, I I had them say, "We hope that this is not going to affect your your writing here." <laughs> and I wrote three more songs for them. One was the lyric was, "You smile at me and you say that you're fine, but you're into love like a late night crime. It's been first degree, and I don't believe that it's love." You're into freedom so much of the time, so badly, baby, you even wanted mine. Well, it's first degree, and I just don't believe that it's love. I should have known who you were. On your own, you'd broken each word. Heart of stone, I should never have turned. Hey, will I ever learn? This ain't no mystery. It's just first degree, and it's not love. You holler, help, and I rush, come see. Next thing I know, you were <laughs> killing me. <laughs> well, I'm a casualty of your infancy, but not of love. <laughs> and so... They said, we think your writing, you think your personal life is affecting your writing. And I said, I, I thought that's why you hired me. <laughs> so yeah. I left after that. I said, I quit. You know, it's common <clears throat> that I've heard from people that the music industry can leave you scarred. No. Did you experience that at all? No. Uh -uh. No. Oh. No, I just, I, I uh, for me, the music industry was music. Mm -hmm. And it's still with me and. No, no scars. I, I mean, I, 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 I'm disappointed at the, at the, the kind of, the short, the, the some of the greed that's there, and some of the, I mean, I wrote, I wrote uh, about Capitol Records up in the tower. Love knows no kinship. She walks a tight circle, seeking out an exit. She passes by the dancers, damsels and the misfits, and she passes off those sweet songs as slick shit. Mm -hmm. You know, so the, I, I had that, the, there's that part of it that's sort of sad that that happens, but, but it's like, it, without the industry, we don't have access to the yeah. music. Yeah. And, and, uh, and it's there's such magnificent stuff in the music that that no I'm I don't I'd I'd do it all again. I would have paid them to get to do what I did mm -hmm. if I'd had any money. So So in the transition into psychotherapy, was your father's prominence and and 
his his career in that field was that partly a draw um well the 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 part of that that was a draw was that i had access to you know all i had access to all the connections with that which was sort of wonderful and sort of natural um but it was more um it, it was i mean after after the period with with A&M records it was sort of like well i i don't know why i'm still here cuz i i've done everything that i wanted to do so i don't know why i'm still on the planet and i i spent a, a year and a half two years just sort of a little bit dazed like what no what, what what now what yeah, yeah. and buckminster fuller a uh, little f- thought that he had r- r- expressed more than once kind of hit me at one point and stuck and he said if you if you don't really know what your true bliss is what you're supposed to be doing for your true if you don't really know what that is just look around and see what needs to be done uh. and do that and so I, what i looked around and that was in front of me was the world of psychology and I was interested in it, and um, and I had been sort of groomed as a people helper from being young, um, and so it it's sort of like okay, well that's hmm. it's interesting, and and I could I've got all this access to all these magnificent you know giants of the field, I could go study with them and learn from them and. And I think the only thing that with Hedge and I mean he had been one of the founding members of Transactional Analysis, the tra- International Transactional Analysis mm-hmm. Association, and and Eric Bernard had taken twelve disciples mm. <laughs> and started uh, ITAA. And um, the the only thing that that was related to that was I just said, well, he's doing that, so I need to get as far away from that as I can. Mm. And uh, I first explored body work with Ida Rolf. I'd gone and studied with Ida. And um, and then I got partnered with the original NLP research, members of the original NLP research team. Um, Neuro-linguistic and, programming. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and joined a, a a group of these three other guys, um, Stephen Gilligan, Paul Carter, and and um, Frank Puslik, um, in a group called Meta Metaphorical mm-hmm. Education and Training Arts, and uh, and that was fascinating world, and um, and it was NLP was the first process model of interaction that I'd ever come across. And I thought that was fascinating. And then subsequently got involved with PCM, Process Communication Model, mm-hmm. which is the only other process model that I know of in terms of human interaction. Human interaction. And it's a, it's a it's clearer cut, um, kind of direct, useful mm-hmm. tool. So you transitioned out of private practice into more or less a, a, the, the application of Process communication to business. Yep, yep. Got had that had a, f- a friend, a guy who had done his doctoral work with my dad, became aware of it, and he was a good 
had a wonderful business, small boutique business consulting firm in L.A. And Brad, um, he went through PCM and said, I, I want you to come, will you train this for my execs that I work with? Mm -hmm. And that turned out to be uh, useful and valuable to them. And so Brad then brought me into the firm. And uh, I, I, it was, again, one of those ones where, well, should I do this or not? And I mean, at the time, I was having to walk across my backyard to go to work. <laughs> and I had to work at least five to 10 hours a week in order to pay my bills. It was really difficult. <laughs> and, uh, but I chose to go up and to go to LA and went to working 70 to 80 hours a week. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and uh, for for a number of years, but it was thoroughly enjoyable. I, I totally loved. It. I did. I did uh, when I was going to L.A. because I'd been back and forth between L.A. and La Jolla a number of times since the early '60s, and this was 1990 that I was going to go back up again. And I I got personalized license plates for at that time. This is why are you in L.A. <laughs> and it wasn't for other people to look at it in me. I'm not asking them. It was making sure you have your own reason for being there because it's. I've lived there a number of times, and it's not. You know, it's got its own limit idiosyncrasies. If yeah. you you know when it takes a, an hour and forty five minutes to drive someplace to dinner that's five miles away. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, <clears throat> somewhere not long after that, as I recall enters one of the great moments of your life. Tell me about Nancy Locke Capers. Yep. Uh, Nance, had been, Nance had been my sister's best friend um, from the late 60s, early 70s. And um, I knew her when Don and I were performing. And we were... Um, we were both involved in she was married to somebody else i was married to somebody else and we were we laughed a lot together and uh, uh i i mean i remember distinctly one when we were married to other uh, different people um my mother's 75th wedding uh, my excuse me 75th birthday and the two of us kind of peeled off into the corner and just were just laughing and laughing and laughing together and loving being together. Um, it's obvious that there was some spark there, and we were generous and kind enough to the people that we were involved with to never choose to be alone together. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, we would have probably jumped each other. Um, and uh, at the, in 1995, uh, we were, I was uh, separated, and... Uh, in the process of divorce, and um, my sister said to to Nance, "What well, you know? Would you go out to lunch with him or dinner with him or something? He, you know, he's he's depressed and he's lonely, and it's you know, go ahead." And and from what I understand, is she said, "I'm afraid that's too dangerous." <laughs> so we set up a date, and then she canceled, saying it was too dangerous, and and uh, and then she told Ruth that my sister Ruth that, and and I thought. Oh, that's nice. I like that. <laughs> and uh, so we had an, another date, and uh, it, uh, the, that first date, she, uh, I, 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 
you know, we had actually second day to ask her to marry me. Wow. So it was, uh, we, and that was, you know, 25 years ago now. Yeah. So it worked out. It's, yeah. it's, um, there's, we're both uh, last, we're both youngest children. Mm-hmm. So there's some, you know, ease there. We both have a very similar sense of humor. Um, she's smart and caring and loving, and and uh, and she thinks I walk on water when it's <laughs> when it's when it's just rained. I can. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <clears throat> and uh, and she's she she loves my kids, which is special. <clears throat> so she also became part of the business with you. Yeah. Yeah. So you did that together for. Um, it, we needed more people who understood the work that we were doing, and Nancy was aware of you know the models that I was working with, and so uh, it, it's a it's she has a she's was is a psychotherapist, and so she had an awareness of you know that aspect of the model that we were working mm-hmm. with. Um, she's extremely sensitive, so I knew her social interactions were. She's got great EQ. Social actions were going to be great. We were going to go work in Ireland, and it seemed like better to be there together than you know. Oh yeah. And so, all in all, it was it was. She was very very good in in the setting that we were you know working in, and it was really great for me that we got to do that stuff together. Yeah. And um, and then she they kept her on to do that job there, and I, they sent they had to send me other places. So it would have been nice to be able to be there together. But you know she got to spend more time in Ireland than I did. Yeah. <clears throat> so I know there's one very very horrible and difficult part of your life that happened with yeah. Yeah, with fortunately Jess. Nancy around. You lost your your son yeah. Jesse. Yeah. Um, tell me about that and about her support for you and how you both got through that i i thought about this with just the recent stuff with kobe you know yes, with kobe uh-huh. Bryant, and i thought his wife that so they had this deal of not flying together and i i would be willing to bet she's wishing she had been on the plane with oh, him, on the yeah. on the helicopter with him it's like there's there's um you can't it's not the order of things to have a child go before you do. It's just not the it's not the order of things. And uh, uh, yeah, it's not the order of things. Yeah, it's it's just not the way it's supposed to be. Jess was he was you know he had had his own tumult. In the way of you know the world was going for him, and he had just sort of come around to to being in a place where things were really good, and uh, and then he's gone. Yeah, yeah, it's not. Well, it must be at least some measure of comfort to have Nancy there to. I, you know, she's wonderful. I don't think there's any way to comfort that thing. Yes, yes. I just it's it's. Uh, it's, yeah, I don't, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, don't, I don't think she would think that 
she's uh, got the capacity to, you know. Yeah. yeah. Now that I think about it, I can understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you did form another little partnership. You guys did a musical together. We did. We did. Tell me about Nancy's role in that one. Well, so I mean, it was Nancy's idea to do a musical. Uh, mm-hmm. But she wanted to do one of all of the old songs that I've got. And I, I said, why do old songs? Let's do new stuff. And, uh, and we were trying to figure out what it would even... We, we hadn't even agreed that we would do it on, on any particular subject. And I, I sat down to, to try and start to write something to see what would come out. And historically, the way I write is I just sit and play piano or guitar and then start to sing and see what comes out. And I couldn't sing. And uh, I uh, couldn't, couldn't maintain a note, couldn't, couldn't, had no range, couldn't, you know, it's a, it just air came out and the mm-hmm. notes cracked. And, and I thought, well, wow, that's weird. I mean, I'd never had that happen before. And, and I, uh, I thought, hmm, well, m- you know, maybe I, j- I haven't used it in a while. Maybe I just need to, you know, just, do some exercises with it. It's a mm-hmm. muscle. You just got to exercise it, and did not help at all. And um, worked, tried to set. Well, maybe I'll get some lessons because I never had lessons. Let's try that. By the way, I wish that I had known about lessons a long, long time ago. That would have been delicious. Another story about that. But, um, but. Finally, I just decided, well, you know what? I probably just wore it out. It's probably just, you know, I was, I was 68, 67 or so years old, and shit happens. You know, wear things out, and that's the way it goes. And, and Nance, bless her heart, she said, well, let's just go have the docs take a peek in there just to see if there's, you know. And went to the, the throat guy, and he looked at this with his thing, and he said, well, I understand why you can't sing. I'm pretty surprised you can speak. He said, we need to send you over and have a little scope done on it. And they went in and looked, and I had a growth on one of my vocal cords about the size of a large cashew. And so vocal cords are, you know, they try to come together to make a reed. Mm-hmm. And if you have an obstacle in the middle, they can't close. Oh. So the air just leaked through, and it couldn't make the tone. And uh, they said, that needs to come off now, and uh, operated on it. And fortunately, it was benign, and a month and a half of silence, and then suddenly I could sing again. Wow. And so for me, what really became the, the focal point of the musical was, was um, I, I, I'm not done yet. And so we went to be about aging mm, and about mm-hmm. the fact that we're not really done yet. And uh, you retire, you know, the definition of retire is to take out of use, (laughs) to withdraw from action, you know, Uh and and it's like, well, I'm not ready to do that. And so the, for me, the, the whole emphasis about the play was, okay, this is about aging and about not being done. And, and then raising the questions of, have you, have you done, have you lived the life that you wanted to live? You've done the things you wanted to do. And if so, great. And if not, well, get busy. And uh, and so we got it. You know, I went to a seminar at, at UCSD for Center for Healthy Aging, and mm-hmm. they had this remarkable research regarding aging. And the 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 real kind of 
eye-opener was that the truth is the quality of life gets better the older you are. Mm. Um, from, you know, kind of starts out at 17, it's through the roof, yes, the world's my oyster, and it goes downhill till 50. <laughs> at 52 on average, that's the low point, and then goes back up. Um, and at 17, it's back, 70, it's back to where it was at 17, and it goes up from there in terms of the self-reported quality of life. And uh, and that's consistent for me. I was I think my down was before 52. It was more like about 48, you know, mm -hmm. because Nance and I met when I was 50, and that's a good thing. <laughs> but, I mean, met, met meaning connected when I was 50. Yeah. So. Well, you had another challenge that, that had you – it took some of the joy out of music. Didn't you lose hearing? Uh, I, it didn't lose it. It just, it just <laughs> run away someplace. I haven't looked for it. They did say that if I let them do an autopsy, they could tell me exactly what happened. <laughs> but I, I just decided an autopsy wasn't in, in, in the cards right now. No, I, yeah, I, it, it, um, it's annoying to not be able to hear – I can't mix the things that I write now because I have no stereo. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't hear stereo. It's it's um, it's 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 annoying to have someone say hedge and not know where they're saying it from because mm. you can't know direction. So one ear is, is one ear works just fine, and the other ear doesn't work at all. Wow! They said I either had a stroke or uh, a virus of some mm -hmm. kind. And uh, again, if I'd let them do an autopsy, they could tell me exactly <laughs> what it was. So. Well, it's got to just feel great to to uh, to have the muse come back, and especially, I mean, like I'm loving the work you're doing with with Sarah. Yeah. Your daughter Sarah. Yeah. That started because when when on my 64th birthday, so many years ago now, 11 years ago now. Um, Nance gave me a surprise party, and Sarah and Ethan both came from Minneapolis and, and New York, and they and, and they they sang. Both of them sang. They're both got. I mean, Sarah's got an angel voice. Ethan's got yeah. more talent than his mom and I put together. And uh, and I thought with Sarah, God, I really I want to write her an album. And I thought, and then I thought, well, wait a minute, maybe she doesn't want to sing. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's why I said, well, I'll ask her, would you like if I wrote you an album? She said, oh, yeah, I'd love that. And then I thought, oh, I, can I write anymore? I haven't written in a long time. And, uh, and I sat down and I wrote, I think, 18 songs in wow. about two weeks. Wow. They just, just came rushing out. And uh, some, of the, some of the lyrics to some of those I love. And it was a treat, and she she sang them, and they're just magnificent. Yeah. So it was wonderful to discover having having not written. I mean, when I was doing consulting stuff through all through the '90s and the early 2000s, and when Nancy and I were, I mean, if you're working 70, 80 hours a week, you don't get to do any music, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you don't have the energy to, and not the not the desire to, and after. Writing Sarah's album to realize, I can, I can, I can do this. This is great still, and so it was a treat. With the, as soon as we figured out what the idea of the musical would be, I, I think I wrote twenty nine songs for the musical, wow. and uh, some of the ones I really loved didn't make it because they, you know, there was something else that was better than that, and 
in the already in the show or you can't yeah. say that you can't say that too many times it's already been said or so that's good so what's next S- just still working on music loving it you yeah. know just putting one foot in front of the other i used to say i was going slide to slide and sucking on the mainstream <laughs> <laughs> riding the rings of saturn yeah just uh just i i'm just amazed that um, I'm 75 now, just day, day shy of 75. Um, I, I golf really well and love it, uh, really well for, for me. Um, I'm a single-digit golfer. Um, I got good friends that I get to spend time with on the golf course. Nance lets me go without objection. Uh, um, I would like to get her to be involved in the musical that I'm engaged in writing now called No Second Chances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, that just sounds like such a great life. It, it, I'm, uh, I'm totally, yes, absolutely, totally blessed. Just, uh, it's, I've been so fortunate and so. Um yeah. I'm I'm happy I got brought into the world. I am too. Oh, thank you, Dan. Yeah. Thank Matter you. of fact, this is a perfect place to close this conversation and I I just wanna let you know again how much I love you and how much you've meant to me in my life and thanks for being in it. Mm. You've enriched Appreciate mine. It. You're listening to Guava Jelly, one of the last songs Hedge and Donna recorded. Our thanks to Hedge's Capers for sharing his life story with us. Check out Hedge's and Nancy Capers' musical, The Geese and Me, at its website, www.thegeeseandme. Geese is G E E Z E. So that's www.thegeeseandme.com. sure to join us again next month for another episode of Unspoken Unsung. And if you like our show, please subscribe, rate, and review it. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find podcasts you enjoy. Also check us out at www.conversayer.net. That's C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-Y-E-R, Conversayer, for more great podcasts. Unspoken Unsung was recorded at the Conversaire Studio, Carlsbad, California. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, also in Carlsbad. Martin Danner engineered the recording. Post-production engineer was Ken Langen. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. The podcast theme music, Hope Not Hate, was written and performed by David Wynne-Jones for Zapsplat. The song... I Am Just a Singer was written and performed by Hedges Capers. 
Guava Jelly was written by Bob Marley and performed by Hedge and Donna. 